Right, John's clearly ready now. Hold on, I, I just need to uh, press the right button. Has he got his glass oh, of... It. Oh, yes, he's got appropriate glass of amber fluid. As I do. In my, yep. in my a point, that's very nearly an armful glass as well, which I've, I've managed to uh, very hold good. on to for three years without breaking, so I'm quite impressed with myself. Very good. There's only two pint glasses left in the house. <laughs> <laughs> but there we are. Give me two seconds. Yes, of course. That's three seconds now. Yeah. Very greedy. <laughs> this isn't the BBC Light programme. The Tony Hancock Appreciation Society presents Ooh, very nearly an armful, a Tony Hancock podcast. Hello and welcome to Very Nearly an Armful, brought to you by the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. On the podcast, we'll be discussing Tony's famous series, Hancock's Half Hour. We'll discuss the show, its production and what we liked about it. We rate and review the episode and just generally get our geek on about vintage comedy. We're your hosts. I'm James Griffith. I'm Martin Gibbons. I'm John Street. And I'm Tim Elms. We're spread across the south of the UK in a line from Wiltshire to Essex via Kent. And our members are spread all over the world. We have members in Markfield, Clanfield, Whitfield and Cookfield. That's a lot of fields. And in this podcast we'll be discussing the Alpine Holiday, the first episode of the second TV series. This is the earliest recording of a television Hancock's Half Hour and the only existing one featuring Kenneth Williams. It was broadcast live at 8pm on Monday the 1st of April 1957. Interestingly, the original script has it referred to as the winter sports in Switzerland. But first of all chaps, what's everyone been up to since we last saw each other? A couple of weeks ago at the convention. Well yes, we had our reunion dinner didn't we, which was a rip-roaring success I think it's fair to say. Indeed. And Tim and I had a, a lovely weekend down in as it turned out, very sunny Bogner for their Punch and Judy festival, which was put on in celebration of 60th anniversary of Tony's Punch and Judy Man film. It was a great weekend, wasn't it, Tim? It was brilliant, yes. Uh, so the Punch and Judy Club and Bogner Arts and Heritage Partnership did most of the work in arranging it. We was involved in the planning stage, and essentially we went down and had two days in the sunshine at Bogner Regis. There were 10 Punch and Judy booths, there was various other bits of entertainment. There was the town crier. The mayor unveiled a plaque. It was a, it was a great occasion, and we met lots of people who love Hancock. Uh, we met lots of our members there who'd, who'd come down to the event, and we even signed up some new members while we were there, so, uh, so that was terrific. Here we are again. Hello. Hello. Come on. My name is Joey the Clown, and I'm very squeezed to meet you. Oh, pleased to meet you. Would you like to see Mr. Punch? Mr. Punch? Will you come upstairs? Hello, Mr. Punch. Now I've got to go downstairs for a glass of bread and drippy. Any podcast listeners down there? Yeah, we had, we had several people came up and said, it was great to meet you and recognised your voices. 
Um, <laughs> so that was that was lovely. And then in the evening, we went to the Picturedrome Cinema in Bognor, uh, where they showed an original 35mm print of the Punch and Judy Man film. And uh, Tim and I did an introduction and Q&A afterwards, which which went down really well. And and a beautiful, beautiful building, um, uh, clearly being restored at the moment. There was a small section that was shut off whilst they were doing renovation and restoration work. Mm. But it was a really lovely uh, cinema. There's two screens in the cinema, and they originally scheduled the film for the smaller of the two venues, but that sold out very quickly, so they had to move it to the larger one. Oh, great news. And the larger one was virtually a sellout. It was it was fantastic. There was a great atmosphere. People loved the film. We had a lively Q&A afterwards. It was really good. And it the film was in remarkable condition, wasn't it, considering it was an original print? Cause we, it we were, really was. Yeah, we were thinking they might need to use the Blu-ray um, like they did at Riverside Studios about a month mm-hmm. ago. But they tested this film, and there was a little bit of sound distortion in a couple of places. But apart from that, it, it was fine. Bearing in mind, presumably it's been kicking around for 60 years, it was uh, it was brilliant. Great news. Great that they've still got a wonderful 35mm bit of celluloid from 1963 that's in, in yeah. decent enough nick to still be projected, yeah? Yeah. And one of the guys from the Punch and Judy Club, David Wilde, he is the owner of the original dolls from the film, the original Punch and Judy and the Crocodile, and he brought them to the event. Amazing. And during the course of the day, they uh, they put on a special show using the original dolls, the same sort of script that they use in the film, and they even mm. made a replica Punch and Judy booth, the same as the one in the film. Because normally Punch and Judy booths only hold one professor, one puppeteer. Mm. But in the film, obviously, um, Hancock's in there with Hugh Lloyd, and it's like a double one, um, yeah. which is a bit of artistic license. But um, so that, that they made one absolutely identical to the one in the film. It was brilliant, including the backdrop behind the mm. yeah. know, the, behind yeah. the curtains. Even yeah. even the backdrop was um, a complete replica of, of yeah. what was on the, the one in the film. And in fact, before the event, there was some nice pictures that they had taken. They put the, the booth up actually on the beach where it would have originally been. Yeah. Um, there was some great publicity photos from that before. Yeah, and they had, did they have all the puppets, original puppets from the film? Were the others replicas of Joey the Clown and the various other ones then? No, I think they're all, all originals. And David owns two. And, in fact, the alligator, mm. uh, the, sorry, the crocodile, not the alli- I keep calling it an alligator, the crocodile, the crocodile, crocodile. was apparently crocodile was apparently a specially made prop for the film because yeah. in the film the crocodile's teeth come out and uh, edward has to stick them back in well in reality the teeth don't come out of these things so uh, that was specially made yes one solid carved piece in the real life yeah. i suppose yeah. isn't it yeah but what an interesting fact i picked up there was that in the film the actual puppetry uh was done by uh, a Punch and Judy professor called Joe Hastings. And uh, he was actually very ill at the time of the film. Um, and sadly, he passed away shortly afterwards. But what what we hadn't realised was that because Joe's voice was, was failing, what they did was to dub over the voice of another Punch and Judy professor. <laughs> Oh, 
So in the film, the voice you hear of the Punch and Judy is actually of a puppeteer called Percy Press. Now, mm. I, I recognise that name when he said when they said it was Percy Press, and it sort of rang a bell with me. And when I looked it up, I realised that he was the Punch and Judy man at Hastings, where I was brought up. So I probably have this distant memory of a child of him. But he, he went to Elstree, apparently, and spent, spent a whole day at Elstree overdubbing the puppets' voices. Doing all the ADR work. Yeah, we always thought it was Joe Hastings, but in fact, it was dubbed over by uh, Percy Press. Another mystery solved. Sounds quite interesting, because I'd always assumed, and it, that it's actually Tony with the swazzle doing the voice. I mean, there's bits of it that are clearly Tony with the swazzle doing the voice. Mm. But I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know, even with the swazzle, it just seems like to maybe it's just your impression yeah. from the film, from the visuals, isn't it? But it, it yeah. seems... I suppose yeah. it's because it's what you're expecting, yeah. isn't it? Um, yes. Yeah, it's what you're led to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Because it is so old, you wouldn't expect there to be quite so much, almost care, not care and attention, because that's his wrong impression, but you think, well, yeah, did Tony, can you do this voice? And then you kind of think, well, that's what they'd they'd settle for in a way. Mm, yeah, yeah. I suppose you've got to think not. You know, ADR and re-recording dialogue seems more of a modern thing, but it's something they've mm. been doing since the 50s, 60s. There's a there's an Ingrid Pitt film called Countess Dracula, and of course Ingrid Pitt was Polish, and so she sort of had the you know she had a voice of her as a young maiden and as an old crone, and she did all this extra work with kind of making the voice sound older, and they dubbed her entire role. She was not a happy bunny about it, but that was 64 oh, oh. or something, so it's not uncommon. We, we had a tweet from someone called Deborah on Twitter who tweeted me a link to an article that Graham McCann had written. Mm. Um, you know, the uh, the comedy writer, Graham McCann. And he'd done this thing that I, I hadn't... I don't know if you guys have heard this before, but apparently when they were filming The Punch and Judy Man on the seafront in Bognor Regis, the BBC were filming Steptoe at the same time. And do you remember there's an edition of Steptoe mm. where they, where the old man always talks about going to Bognor for his holidays. Um, and uh, so they were filming and Duncan Wood said he was directing and uh, they said that they looked along the seafront as they were going along with the horse and cart that, um, and suddenly they realised it was Hancock at the end of the promenade. Um, <laughs> and of course, it was Steptoe and the Sun that uh, was the the new series for Gordon Simpson, of course, who um, who Hancock had, had moved away from. Oh, so yeah. there, there was apparently there was an awkward silence for a bit before they all shook hands, and then after they'd done their respected filming, they all met up down the pub and got drunk. So uh, that sounds fairly typical. Yep, <laughs> sounds that's a great story, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. What was also nice, I think, part of the festival was the unveiling of a, a blue plaque to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the film, which I believe has got Bogdad Town Council and uh, and also the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society on the on the plaque. But that was really nice for that to be unveiled at the Royal Norfolk Hotel, which is where Tony stayed uh, whilst making the film. Um, and there's already a blue plaque on there as well to commemorate the fact yeah. that he stayed at the hotel. So it, th there's now two two separate ones, which is really nice. And we must give our thanks to Royal Norfolk Hotel as well, because I think they were, I think when we first put to them the idea of having this festival on their front lawn, I think they looked at us thinking we were quite mad, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. uh, but they were, but they were very good and um, very obliging, and basically just let us get on with it. Because Royal Norfolk is a lovely; it looks really lovely from the outside. It's a beautiful building, 
and it's got this huge grass lawn out the front and it's just made for a festival like this you know normally it just sits there i don't think they do much on this lawn during the course of the year except making it look pretty but uh so we all turned up with uh, tables and gazebos and stages and microphones and punch and judy people and that and uh, um sort of just took it took it over for the weekend yeah, and we must thank the Punch and Judy Club as well because I yeah. think you know they were and and Bob mm-hmm. the Town Council because they were all um, yeah. instrumental yeah. in the organisation of the of the yeah. weekend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? We might be back next year, Martin. Well, we might be. Yeah. Uh, we might be. Um, we are keeping fingers crossed because it was oh. it's certainly an event worth doing. Just whilst mentioning Punch and Judy, man, at the point this podcast is released, not yet. Well, as we're recording it, there's another showing of the Punch and Judy Man at the Purbeck Film Festival, which uh, has been introduced by one of our members, Tom Domit, um, and he was hosting question and answer afterwards. As I say, that's in the future at the point we're recording this, but uh, will have happened by the time this uh, podcast goes live. We mentioned briefly, just before we started talking about the Punch and Judy Man, we mentioned briefly the annual dinner. I think we can uh, say quite a bit more about that, can't we? Yeah. We had our special guest, our special guest, Diane Morgan. We was absolutely delighted that uh, she was able to come and find time in her busy schedule. She said um, some months ago that she would be able to come subject to commitments. And obviously people like Diane are exceptionally busy yeah. uh, with various things. And we just kept our fingers crossed for a few, few months that uh, nothing would come into her calendar for that particular weekend. And lo and behold, she was able to come and... Uh, what, what, a, what a delight she was telling us all about her love of Hancock, how Hancock influenced her and her comedy, and, you know, how when she was a young girl, whereas all her friends had pictures of pop stars on the bedroom wall, she had pictures of Hancock. So uh, that, that was great. Yeah, she was great. Yeah, she was a fantastic guest. She spent so much time talking to our members and citing just about everything anyone put in front of her. And uh, it was uh, no, it was great. And we must also thank um, Adam McLean and Vicky Thomas, producers of the very nearly an awful documentary, who kindly came along with Diane and uh, uh, did a an interview with her to bring out her love of Hancock. And we played some of her favourite favourite clips from the TV shows. Um, so thanks to them as well because it it certainly made um, a fantastic evening. And all the feedback we had from our members was that they all thoroughly enjoyed it. Absolutely. And we had a guest in the afternoon as well. We did indeed. We had Simon Hodder-Williams, whose father, Christopher Hodder-Williams, composed a lot of the music for Tony's very first television series, The Tony Hancock Show, and in fact made an appearance in the very first episode uh, where he was playing the piano in a mock party to celebrate the launch of the uh, of the series. And he played piano to accompany June Whitfield in her first song. Um, so I think um, Simon was... Very pleased to see his dad in the program as well, which which was a you know I think a lovely surprise for him. Yeah, it was a great event, wasn't it? Everything went well, perfectly organised by our colleague Ros Dawson. All the table places and everything was just uh, everything was just fantastic. Yeah, really, it was fantastic really as day. always. Really Brilliant day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got a rather amusing story that might not be for the part of you, but whoever day. Oh yes, yes. So um, Ros was talking to Diane Morgan in in the foyer of the hotel. And then a young family walked in, and then uh, there are two young girls, and uh, the mother whispered to the two girls, oh, that's Diane Morgan over there. Why do you go and ask if you can have a picture? And these girls came running over to Roz, 
and I saw the picture. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> so, Lovely. Ros looked very confused. Can I have my picture? I've heard you're famous. <laughs> yeah. Bless. <laughs> Oh, I hadn't heard that story. That's, yeah. that's lovely. I witnessed it in all its glory. It's <laughs> delightful. I, I think um, she was saying though that she was um, she was approached in Birmingham New Street Station um, and uh, did a quick photo and autograph uh, for someone who had just spotted her on the way on the way to the dinner. So, uh, uh, which yeah. is uh, which is lovely. Yeah, she spoke really well about Teddy Hancock. She did really, yes. really knowledgeable. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I'll pop a clip of Diane talking about her favourite comedian here. We were thinking about this earlier. When I was uh, probably about 12 years old, my dad introduced me to Tony Hancock, not literally, <coughs> this is Tony Hancock. Sit down, you're going to love this. He was really funny. So I sat down. And I could not believe how funny this one was. And I think there was something about it that really sort of tapped into uh, the, I mean, the misery of life. <laughs> how, and this, I sort of got like grown up to me then. I thought, here's this man, he's meant to be grown up, and yet he's acting like a child. And there was something so funny about that. The way he would just be, he wouldn't play along. He, he such found everything sort of miserable and annoying. And, and, and as a child, I really sort of understood that. Do you, do you think he stood you in good stead for the disappointment that, like, essentially, <laughs> he's, so as, a, as an adult, you, yeah. you know, kind of... I think it really sort of helps. You know, I, I watch him even now. And if I'm feeling a bit down, I watch Hancock and it just, it really cheers me up. I don't know why that is, why he does that more than anyone else, more than any other comedian or, or comic actor. Or, there's something about what he did that really taps into me. And I'm sure other people feel that as well. There's something about what it's like being a human. It's, it sort of transcends kind of uh, class and yeah. geographical location. I mean, you know, he's there. He is in Cheam or whatever, and yeah. or up in Bolton. Yeah. There's, there's a universal mundane. How life is sort of really mundane. And I think before that, on TV, you only had. Uh, I don't think there was anything so was, ordinary. Like it was, it was a naturalistic. But it goes beyond that as well. It's not just, um, it's the physicality as well. You mentioned in, when, we, when we chatted last year, it was about a year ago, yeah. right now, but you love the malleability of his face yeah. as well. Yeah, that's what annoys me that people always say that Hancock is deadpan. He's always described as a deadpan actor, but actually, he's got the most expressive face I've ever seen. And, and like can fit in like 30 different expressions in one five second clip. You know, or, or, you know the, the clip that we're, gonna, we're probably going to show in the Bed City, but if you all know where he's reading Bertrand Russell. <laughs> and the faces he goes through where he can't understand a word and then he thinks he can, but then he can't remember it. And he was like, the faces are just 
insanely brilliant, technically brilliant. And, and you try and work out what that said about him, and, and it's quite hard to find out who the man is, really, isn't he? Hancock's every man, but he's also a bit of a mystery, yeah. I think. I don't know if you'd agree with that. I think he, he probably always felt like there was a hole in his education. Mm. He kept got on the whole background and he was always trying to catch up and prove that he was more than the character. Do you think you'd have ever got there? Is it a sort of totally unobtainable thing, though? This is a thing you didn't need to do all that. You <laughs> want to say you don't need to do all this. You were not, you know. I mean, if you could see everyone now, mm. in 2023, gathered in a room. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't blow his mind. He certainly wouldn't have committed suicide, I think. He would, if you could have gone back in time. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, how did your your love of uh, Hancock manifest itself once you discovered him? So obviously, uh, you know, you joined the Appreciation Society, um, and am I right in thinking that you did have some posters? Well, you couldn't get a poster of Hancock. But, uh, yeah, I suppose I just watched it so much over and over and over again, but I just started to feel like I was becoming it. <laughs> I sort of start doing it around the house, you know what I mean? I could feel that, like, uh, I would respond in a way that he'd respond, and it's just weird as an 11-year-old girl. <laughs> it's like I was possessed. That's how, that's how it manifested. Do, do you remember what the first episode you saw was, or the one that, that reeled you in? I think it was um, Missing Page, I think. Oh, good choice. Yeah. Good one. So, chaps, I guess it's time for the Hancock headlines. Take it away, Martin. Tim and I um, went to the Riverside Studios on the 4th of November and we had another successful showing of Hancock's Half Hour. This time we showed the Spanish Insalute, the East Cheam Centenary and the Big Night and another great question and answer session followed the showing and we're due back at the Riverside in December for a, a Christmas special when we'll be showing Ericsson the Viking and Hancock's 43 Minutes. Uh, so... If you want to get some tickets, uh, head to riverside.co.uk uh, and you'll be able to, to, to get along to see us uh, in early December. And of course, the Apollo Theatre Tour has been ongoing for the last month or two. And uh, there are two just two dates left by the time this podcast goes out. One which is tomorrow, the 12th of November, at the Savoy Theatre Monmouth. And then the final date is the 15th of November at the Chelmsford Theatre. So uh, we do hope you can make it. Just visit www.apollotheatrecompany.com for details. So then, I guess it's uh, time for our main subject, the Alpine Holiday. And of course, this one only exists as a tele-recording, which was done as for, I think, test purposes, wasn't it, by the BBC? It wasn't, you know, they subsequently rebroadcast it from the tele-recording when an episode fell through. But it was only ever really intended as a, I don't know, archival sort of experiment. Training thing, wasn't it? Training thing. Yeah. I think yeah. it, was, it, was, it was to allow it was to allow the technicians to learn from it, to look at how mm. it went, and to see, oh, we do that different next time, and this sort of thing. But in those days, you know, all series one was broadcast live, 
and none of them were telerecorded at all. No. I think the telerecording technology was there, but as we said, it was it was just for technical purposes. No one thought, well, the quality would normally not be good enough to, to rebroadcast, and that wasn't the mm. reason it was done. But uh, for, for people listening who are not quite sure what telerecording is, the way I describe it as someone who doesn't know very much about these things is it, it's a bit like holding a camera up to a TV screen. So you're, Essentially. You're, you're basically, you're filming. You're holding up a 16mm camera or something in, in front of a TV screen. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a bit more uh, scientific than that, but that, that's yeah. effectively what it is. So al- although, yes. it's on, although it's on film, you still get the same grainy lines, etc., because you're filming off a telly. Essentially, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it, it was. Uh, I think the film camera was modified to do 25 frames a second, so it would be in sync yeah. with the 50 fields or pulses or whatever of uh, yeah. uh, interlaced television, um, and was probably a skipped field telerecording where every other of the fields was skipped, so you didn't have blurring and such like Um, and in fact the very earliest telerecordings of things like the Quatermass experiment episode one or episode two there's a fly that wanders onto this slightly more flat cathode ray tube monitor and wanders around for about five minutes which is why the rest of it was then never recorded fortunately that didn't happen with the Alpine holiday but yeah essentially it's a a slightly fancy way of, of yeah filming a television monitor Slightly zoomed in so you didn't get the edges and stuff, which is why in some of these old shows when people are off towards the edge of the frame, their face sort of warps and gets thin because it's not entirely flat screen. But, um, yep, wonderful that it does exist. And, of course, the earliest show that that exists, the next one is Series 3, I think, isn't it? There's not another from Series 2. No, that's right. And, of course, this one has the the wonderful joy of having Kenneth Williams as Snide in picture. For us all to see, which um, he appeared in all of the second series, but this is the only one that exists still. And it's quite yeah. nice that they had a series like that with Ken. Yeah, it's great to uh, great to see you, uh, Kenneth in uh, in the Snide character. Good evening. <laughs> what do you want? I'm your roommate. Oh no, you're not. Come oh, on, don't mess the bell. A nice room, isn't it? <laughs> you don't mind my coming in, do you? No, please do. Mm. He's cosy in here, isn't it? I think we're going to get along very well. Don't you? No. <laughs> and, of course, he repeated the Snide character again in The, um, in the New Neighbour, the television yes. version that was also in this series. Um, but, uh, no, it was great, great to see him. In, and doesn't he look... Very young in so this, young. this, this young. episode. Yeah. But so does Hancock. Well, this this is a year before his first carry-on film, isn't it? The carry-on sergeant yeah. came out about a year later. That's right. Um, so, yeah, you think this is, this is pre-fame, pre-everything, Kenneth, isn't it, really? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. And, of course, this is one of only two Hancock's half-hour television episodes not to feature Sid James. That's right, yeah. Which, again, makes it makes it feel very different from oh. um, most of most of the other surviving episodes. I mean, I, I, I don't think I know why he wasn't there, but I can only imagine it was to do with one of his many, many film commitments, I would imagine. Filming commitment, yeah. Yes, I think I it was. I expect so. He did an awful lot of films every year. Yeah. Well, I was looking this up, and of course, the films that came out after 
this episode because you know what films are filmed in advance of course so there's a few it could have been the shirley hell drivers the story of esther costello campbell's kingdom or a king in new york which he made with charlie chaplin all of which came out in the latter half of 1957 well, so one of those maybe he was filming because he wasn't in this episode and he wasn't in the second episode which was lady chatterley's revenge uh, sid reappears in the russian prince in the opening titles in fact, um, you know, where he goes, <sighs> Hancock's half hour, he does that, and then Sid goes, hello, Hancock, and Tony goes, oh, cool, and then it cuts to the rest of the titles and the episode starts, so he just appears in the opening, <laughs> in that opening Hancock's half hour bit, which is, um, would have been delightful had it still existed, but, and of course you've got Snide playing, uh, uh, sorry, Ken playing Snide in The Russian Prince as well, oh, I'm The Russian Prince, I am, mm, yes, so uh, that's quite good fun. You, I think you can see why Hancock wasn't keen on the Snide character on TV, uh, even more so than on radio, because he yeah. he, he does particularly wearing that uh, what's that outfit called? That Austrian outfit or Swiss outfit he's wearing? I mean, Lederhosen. Lederhosen. Yeah, it, it is somewhat camp, isn't it? Oh, he's very over. There. I mean, it's a very camp episode. You've got him, oh. and then you've got the wonderful uh, Richard Wattis, uh, and of course. Uh, Oh, John Veer as well, all three of them camping it up to a great yeah. degree in this one. Some people have got no consideration for others, I don't know. Down, sir, sit down before I call the captain. Disgusting behaviour. Oh, shut up. We watched it earlier and Nick went, oh, they're very short shorts he's wearing there, Ken. <laughs> Get lallies out, you know. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, lovely to see June Whitfield. Yeah. I think, you know, if you think back to all the early... The earliest surviving Hancock on television is the Tony Hancock show, and you've got June Whitfield in uh, five of those six. And then here she is in the very first Hancock's half hour that survives. Yeah, just a year later. Ah, good morning, Mr. Juan. Oh, very morning. nice to see you again. We have yes. your reservation already. Oh, thank Room you very much. 29. Oh, nice 29. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's the only Hancock's half hour she's in. Yeah, and then, of course, she's in the very last episode of Hancock. Well, of course, two. she's in the blood donor, in the blood donor, and then yeah. of course she's in Succession, yeah. Son and Heir. So it sort of feels it feels really nice that we've got her in the oldest surviving and the newest surviving episodes of Hancock and Hancock's Half Hour. But she plays a great a great role as Miss Dubois, doesn't she? Yes, yeah, Miss Dubois. She's she's the only one who bothers putting on an accent. You know, you don't get Richard yeah. Wallace trying to do Swiss, do you? Oh, you know? oh, oh, eh, eh. No. I'm on holiday, you see. Now, I want complete rest and relaxation while I'm over here. I don't want people rushing about after me and plaguing me for autographs. Want to be completely incognito. I don't want anybody to know I'm here. Of course, sir. It must be so embarrassing for you. What name, sir? Hancock. Tony Hancock. Tony Hancock? Shh, you'll have them all over here. You've, uh, got my room. No. <laughs> I wonder why that was that he didn't try to he didn't try to put in any sort of accent at all because even Hancock says you're of course you're Swiss. Yes, that's yeah. right. It's odd. Well, but but in front of him on the desk, maybe he just couldn't do it. Mm. But he's, it says Richard Bottis on the name plaque on the desk, doesn't it? So uh, he does. does. Yeah. Yes, he's so, pla he is playing himself without a doubt. So he he's playing a a French uh, name or whatever. And of course, June was in the in the very first TV series Tony did, and the very last British TV series he did in 1967 as well. Yeah, of, of course. Hancock's. Yes, yeah. Hancock's. Yeah. Yes, yeah. 
Yes, because she was the um, sort of the bunny girl, waitress, yeah. whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. in Hancock's in 1967. Right then, you've asked for it. Oh, thank you, Willie J. Stavely, thank goodness you're here. Tell these buffoons who I am. Oh, Willie, I've always wanted to meet you in the flesh. I'm warning you, Stavely. <laughs> I'm sorry, Tone, but you must admit you look very idiotic dressed like that. And in that hat. Am I to take it that this gentleman is who he claims to be? Yes, I'm afraid so. You're lucky there, mate. I was just about to give you the Irish whip. <laughs> yes, I'm Tony Hancock, comedian and swinger. It's good to see uh, Liz Fraser in this one as well. This is the uh, obviously the oldest surviving one with Liz Fraser. Yeah. She started off in series one, didn't she, playing a teddy girl. Was that in The Dancer, her first one? Mm. The Dancer, that's right. She only had one line, and the story goes that she said it so well that Hancock wanted to have her back, and this is one of the episodes in which she came back for. In, in Wilmot's book, it describes her as autograph hunter, but she's also in the on the plane in the opening scene, isn't she? She's, yes. Mind you, so is Alan Simpson on the plane. Alan Simpson is there, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. You've got yeah. Alan Simpson, and then sat next to Alan, you've got old Evelyn Lund, the old, Evelyn old Lund, dear yeah. who appeared yeah. with quite dark eyes, sort of uh, yep. in various bit parts and things. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I wondered if you tweaked her on the plane. Yeah. Mm. But it's good to see Liz Fraser in that, and I did look up. I think it's her fourth. It was her fourth appearance because she was in the dancer, uh, the request, and mm. the radio show. That was um, episodes three, four, and five of the first series, and then yeah. um, on this one as well. Um, so she obviously made a, a, a good mark to, to, to keep coming back in these early in these early episodes. Yeah. Although, although after four episodes, she still didn't recognise him and thought he was Sabrina. Sabrina, yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. That's a terrible joke, isn't it? It is, isn't it, really? <laughs> it is, you know. I'm sure it is. Go on. Ask for an autograph. Can I have your autograph, please? What did I tell you? They come rushing straight over, you see? Now, <laughs> yeah, my dear. <laughs> yeah. There you are. I told you it wasn't Sabrina. <laughs> I was literally about to ask that but what is obviously Sabrina was considered what the British Marilyn Monroe of the time correct? Yes. yes but what is the fascination with thinking that Hancock Sabrina or, or they mentioned Sabrina quite a few times yeah. throughout the series she, she, well she was quite notorious because was she um, like a figure of fun almost or not really well I, I, I think it was her shape James she's had some assets that a lot of other models don't have um, I don't which, understand him. Um, Can you elaborate? <laughs> she was the Jordan of her day, I suppose. You're the Katie Price of she, her she day. She was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, I have, I have Googled her. But <laughs> and and wondered... in those days, it, it was, it was a little bit more shocking than it is today. You know, mm. so it, it was quite, it was, it was quite a thing to have her pictured, and she'd be pictured in all the papers, and she'd do. Didn't didn't she start off with Arthur Askey? I think in in, I think I think she came to fame with Arthur Askey. Arthur Askey's mother. <laughs> oh, yes. There is a resemblance. Is there nothing your readers won't believe? No. If I told them Sabrina was Arthur Askey's mother, they'd believe me. <laughs> well, I don't. Now, the point is, Sid, she's not, is she? <laughs> no. I'm just making sure, because there is a resemblance. <laughs> Part of the joke with Arthur Askey, of course, was he was quite short, and... Uh, Therefore, if he was standing next to Sabrina, I think he would get a, a faceful, as they say. So, but then she, I mean, she obviously became a, a, 
an in-demand model and she'd be pictured here, there and everywhere. So she was just, um, mm. you know, it was, she was just a very famous face and very famous other things as oh. well. Because uh, she gets mentioned several times, doesn't she, in Hancock, and she gets mentioned quite a few times in the Goon Show as well. So, so clearly was was very oh. well known at the time. Yeah. Well, I was listening to the the missing Hancock's the racehorse the other day with uh, Andy Seacombe, and they called the horse Sabrina. Why? Because I hope she'll be well out in front. Front, uh, which is. Uh... <laughs> Tell you, we'll make a fortune with this horse. Think of the odds we'll get. The kindest thing would be to lift him straight into the frying pan. We're not eating it. It's a her, anyway. I think she's rather sweet. What's her name? Sabrina. What do you call her that for? Well, I'm hoping she'll be well out in front. <laughs> do you know what? One of my uh, one of my earliest memories when I was very, very, very young. Just a careful lot. Study on Tim. Back in the 1990s. <laughs> so, going no, back in when I was very, very, very young, we went on a caravan holiday. And the caravan was called Sabrina. So I, I remember that. Really? Ah, okay. I mean, um, there's so many jokes really? I could we could make there, but... Yeah, yeah. Did you have a nice time? <laughs> Did you have a nice time? <laughs> well, of course, other other people in this one, you've got Dennis Chinnery as the pilot, um, and he's got a fair few yeah. lines. He doesn't always have that many lines, but uh, he, I think he was also an artist, wasn't he? Yes, we've got a number of sketches in the archive uh, signed by Dennis Chinnery, drawings of Hancock and, and various other people. Yeah. Mm, but he wasn't the pilot, was he, John? Wasn't he the driver? The driver. Oh, the driver. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. Give the driver my compliments. Tell him we're having a very smooth trip. Thank you very much, sir. I'm glad you're enjoying the flight. Who are you? I'm the uh, driver. Well, that that whole opening scene with the on the air aeroplane, um, and it's you know for for the the budget, I suppose it's a fairly good mock up of an aeroplane. But Tony varies between sort of pompous bragging. And blind panic throughout the entire trip, doesn't yeah. he? You know, he's like, and it's oh, just well, switching from one the to the other. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah, 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 exactly. And everyone yeah. rolling their eyes at him. Yeah. Um, poor old John Beer has to sit next to him. And John was in quite a lot of the TV episodes and two or three radio yeah. shows. And I think yeah. only one exists still of the radio ones that John was in. Yeah, uh, um, but of course, John was also in Tony Hancock's first. TV series, well, yes. the Tony Hancock show, and he had quite a quite just a big role before. in that. Mm. Yeah, just the year before. That's right. Yes, yeah, so I'm not quite sure how they managed live for Tony to stand on John's knees. Mm, yeah, that must have looked painful, um, to, didn't it? To, to, that looked very painful. <laughs> um, for him to put the skis up. Probably in... not the most comfortable, but no, no, no. Yeah. Maybe he got a bonus payment for being stepped on. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> quite possibly. But I love the scene in the um, in the aeroplane where he wants to open the windows, and he says, "Is this a roller down, a slider outer, or slider along, or a pusher outer, or something like that?" Yeah. Isn't it? Should we have a window down? <laughs> What's this then? What are these? These winder downers, slider backers, or pusher outers? <laughs> windows in aeroplanes do not open. This is a pressurized cabin. If the window opened, the plane would explode. Well, that's bad workmanship, are <laughs> If they opened the windows, the plane would explode. <laughs> well, that's just bad workmanship, old yeah, man. Well, yeah, yes. exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Didn't get this with the tiger moths. And of course, you've got the wonderful Peggy Ann Clifford as well, haven't you? Um, and she gets the most lines, yes. I think, in this in most of her shows. You know, she's in quite a few where she doesn't say much. Yeah, she's good at it, isn't she? <laughs> she is. I mean, the fattest joke about, oh, I can I can see why I had such trouble trying to take off. When he's no slimmer than she is, really. So no. It's a little bit <laughs> no, that's right. hypocritical of him, to say the least, shall we say. But there we go. And what do you think you're doing? Who are you? I am the air hostess. No wonder we had a job getting off the ground. <laughs> this is the third time you've been told, put that stuff back in the luggage department. I am not letting this out of my sight. Very valuable property, this is. Put this stuff down. Amongst this thieving mob? Not on your life. Pull yourself in, woman. I can't. Oh, this is ridiculous, having a woman of her size on a plane. Turn around, nothing to do with you. <laughs> it's quite funny because he is very nervous about flying because mm. it's his first flight. And, and when they get to the hotel, the pilot says to him, you know, don't worry, it happens to a lot of people on their first flight. Uh, but then it transpires that he was at the hotel the year before. So it's not his first flight at all. He's, he's obviously a seasoned traveller. A little bit of inconsistency again. Unless he drove there. Unless he drove Unless there, Unless he maybe. drove there, yeah. Yeah. But he says, um, after it discovers, as Richard Wattis discovers that... Um, Hancock has been there before, and there's this matter of four towels, a tea service, and an ashtray, um, <laughs> which he nicked the time before and hadn't paid his bill. But and then it's talking about him driving to the airport, and they recovered the manager's car from That's the airport. That's true. So yeah. clearly he had flown back. Oh, he yeah. must have done. Hancock, I was here last year. Last year, yes. Hancock, Tony, Tony Hancock. Hancock. Yes, yes. Just a minute. That's the yes, here we are, That's Tony right. Hancock. Yes. A little matter of four towels, a tea service, and an ashtray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, souvenirs, that's all souvenirs. Mementos of Switzerland, I... Of course. Yes. Do you think we might have a few mementos of England, such as 78-pound notes to cover last year's bill? So, Tim, I was wondering, what is the um, conversion for the 77... Was it a 77-pound bill from last time? 78-pound notes as mementos from England, do you think, for last year's bill, I think. What's the conversion life? of that? That'll be about two and a half grand, I think. Cool. Whoa, whoa. It's expensive, isn't it? They they were expensive towels, weren't they? Yeah, well, weren't they? (laughs) (laughs) It's been gold plated. Well, that was it was it was last year's bill he hadn't paid. The the towels were just an extra expense on top, I think. And of course, Richard Wattis is is wonderfully camping because Richard Wattis. I mean, I looked at his filmography. Crikey, he was in everything. A very very busy actor. He uh, was, wasn't he? And he he he's, he apparently he, you know he often used to play these sort of authoritarian, stiff upper lip kind of upper crust kind of type characters. Not unlike the kind of characters that say John Lemaitre used to play um, before he was known for he comedy. He was in Sykes, wasn't he? He was yeah. as, as Charles uh, Fulbright Brown in Sykes. Right. In yes. fact, I think yeah. actually they wanted to cut his character from the second series of Sykes or maybe the second colour series of Sykes and Eric Sykes went, No, you don't you don't, you know, save expenses on talent, no, I and they kept him in Sykes oh. until he sadly died. And he's only sixty three or something like that. He died of a heart attack in Berwick's restaurant. Oh. And apparently I, I've read this on Facebook, I don't know if it's true, but it's an interesting anecdote. But apparently he died or had a heart attack in Berwick's restaurant in London um, and subsequently died in the hospital and the restaurant sent the bill for his meal to his estate after his death, which oh. is very poor to us. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, oh, apparently. Oh. Sounds, sounds like something Basil Forty would have done, doesn't it? Oh, it does, doesn't it? Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah. 
But apparently he was a much more sort of camp and joyous type character than the roles he used to play. And uh, I think it was yeah. 24 years after his death that someone wrote in uh, the, the autobiography that he was he was actually a, a gay gentleman, which doesn't entirely surprise me, yeah. but uh, wasn't yeah. wasn't sort of you know publicly acknowledged at the time, of course. Um, yeah. But he was a, he's, he just has a wonderful performance in this. I mean, he, my favourite line in this in his... Oh, you naughty Englishman! Any more disgusting mistakes like this and I'd have you arrested. But you don't understand! I'm... Oh, you naughty Englishman! <laughs> oh, you up, bloody Latin! Uh, yes, <laughs> he's referring to, to Tony trying to spy on uh, on June. Or Madame de Dubois. Miss Dubois, indeed. Yeah. He does look like the sort of gentleman that wouldn't want to put on a foreign accent. Do you know what I mean? I think yeah. it could have gone badly yeah. if he tried. <laughs> uh. Yeah, you just don't you just don't get that feeling that he would be good at that. No, I was going to say, thinking of Miss Dubois and the the room numbers that keep changing. This has really got a little bit of an element of a farce about it, hasn't it? Which is yeah. not yeah, absolutely. Which is yep. not the usual. I think the only other one that I can think of that sort of heads towards farce is the Italian maid. Uh. Um, uh, where you've got them all vying for the Italian maids, uh, as in Sid and Tony vying for her attentions. But I love the fact that it's, it's a real traditional farce with doors opening and closing and numbers changing. Yeah, and the fact that it happens twice as well. Yes, yes. It's a different style, isn't it? Because obviously it's it <clears throat> relies on those gags. I mean, that wouldn't work on the radio show. Oh, no, no, no. No, you've got to have the gag with the number moving. So it's it's a very different story, isn't it? Yes. It's not her room, it is my room. If you don't believe me, have a look at the key. It's perfectly right, mademoiselle, it is his room. Oh, ah, but God. I have a much better apartment for you just down my corner. But just that idea of the, of the six turning into a nine by a loose screw and the mix-ups and things like <laughs> that. And you kind of got to feel for Tony's character because he's not in the wrong at all. And yet, you know, <laughs> um, it, 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 people don't believe him. Maybe he just looks like a pervert. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> he's got that seedy look. When he's lying on the floor, he goes, and he just sees the leg, and he goes, and half price, and you can't go wrong. Yes. That's <laughs> sorted out what we're going to do in the evenings, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Good. it does. Only half price for the room as well. You can't grumble at something. <laughs> I miss you, Bar said. Are you, I bet you're going to say you're looking for a squeak. He <laughs> says, oh, yes. As it happens. <laughs> Tell me, you are under there looking for a squeak. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, and she calls him a peeping Tim. Peeping, peeping Tim. Tim. Peeping Tim. Tim. It's a peeping Tim. I know your type. Creeping into a girl's room. You, 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 peeping Tim. Peeping Tim? <laughs> Don't give me that stuff. There's nothing unusual for you continental ladies. Oh. What? I've been to Boulogne. <laughs> And then she calls him a dirty old man the second time round, doesn't she? Which sort of reminds you a little of Steptoe. There's, there's, yeah. another, there's another Richard Wattis line when he says, you Englishmen are all the same. The moment you leave Dover Harbour, you're at it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, an intrigue. No, 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 you misunderstand. You Englishmen are all the same. Highly respectable all the year round, and the moment you leave Dover Harbour, you're at it. <laughs> People still say the same thing, I think, in the newspapers now, don't they? It's like, yeah, as soon as you leave Dover Harbour, that's it, 18 pints down and being a nuisance on the beach in whatever, my Ibiza resort or whatever it might be that people go to. 
That's just Martin when he's on holiday. That's just Martin, yeah. I've heard all the stories. My reputation has proceeded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only here for the winter sports. Quite right. Oh, yeah. but, but I'm not one of them, says Mr. Dwyer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, of course, the one thing of with, with Richard Swatis as well is it is a moment where he goes to the desk after... Because obviously, you know, you have Ken and, and everything like that. And he comes up from behind the desk with a nightcap and nightgown. Yes, and a, yeah. A little candle as well. Yeah. Like something from Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, yeah. the Christmas Carol. Is you are full, they? they are full up, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, just uh, what a, a bizarre visual image that is to see him. What was he? Got, got a bed down there? He just appears from behind still the working. desk. Still working. Yeah. Still working. Still working. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the hotel is full, isn't it? What do you want at this hour in the morning? I must get some sleep. There are two maniacs in my room. I demand you change my room. Well, you better go up on the third floor, room number 36. My favourite sequence is um, Richard Bosses saying, as Tony's about to go off skiing, mind the trees. Mm. To which Tony says, I know where all the trees are. I was here last year, remember? I'm going out skiing for the day, if anybody wants to know where I am. Good day. Mind the trees. <laughs> I know where all the trees are. I'm not a newcomer here. I was here last year, remember? And then he comes back in to say, I wish to report a new tree on slope 604. <laughs> That's a wonderful line, isn't it? Because, because of that proceeding line, it's just really funny. I wish to report a new tree on slope 604. <laughs> and the, um, well, obviously, he had a very quick, well, I say costume change, making his costume in a mess. Yeah, because as as this was a live a live broadcast, I thought that worked really well. You know, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, you have quite a few of those sort of shots of um, stock footage of people skiing in aeroplanes and um, the old yes. those things on wires. You know, car along the pass that type of <laughs> thing. lifts, ski lifts. Everything's <laughs> <laughs> on wires. <laughs> yeah, so not quite a ski lift. It's more the sort of the enclosed carriage thing. Cable, cable car. Cable car. That's the the cable. word I can think of. So you have sort of 45 seconds of that, which is just enough time for the, yeah. a few makeup people to come on and make a mess yeah. of him very quickly so he can come back in the door, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. But he comes yeah. in with one yes. broken ski as well. He just looks the right state. Um, <laughs> so you can kind of, you get, even though you don't see it, you get that visual image of him hitting the yeah. tree. And I think, does he say carnivorous? But he's meant to say coniferous as well. I couldn't uh, quite, right. I was like, do you say that wrong? He yeah. definitely says carnivorous. Yeah, carnivorous trees. Dangerous. The day of the Triffids <laughs> territory, that is. Carnivorous, I fancy. Number 36. 36. Thank you. Was that a mistake on his part? Was it saying the script? Does it say carnivorous or does it, it might say... Be a, it might be a deliberate Hancockism. Could be, yeah. Man of my caliber, yeah. that kind of thing. Now, yeah. now, the script doesn't say that. The script doesn't say Man of Michael Lieber. I admit, noticed that earlier. Oh, right. Yeah. He just popped it in there. 
But of course, I suppose the thing is, is, is that these were done live. So, you know, he's he's going from what he's learned from memory. And if he can't uh, quite think of the next line, he'll make up an... Im- you know, Hancock wasn't known for ad-libbing, but he could do it when he needed to. Yeah. Um, as evidenced yeah. by shows where things went wrong, like, you know. It's not so much ad-libbing as... as mm. Dropping a word in. Sort mm. of changing slightly the words. and Adding and colour. Basically, it's surviving, isn't it? It's like mm. the airfield at the bottom of the garden. He's not mm-hmm. ad-libbing, he's just getting through the blooming thing, you know, quite rightly. I do think that he meant carnivorous because he assumed that the tree was trying to consume him the way uh, he mm-hmm. hit it. No, it, the script is carnivorous. Oh, oh it's yeah. intentional Hancockism then as opposed yep. to a, a misread. Yeah, it's it, it's carnivorous, I fancy, Mikey, please, he says. And what was <laughs> the bit I just said that it doesn't say on the script? Man of my calibre. It's a big script. Well, all right. I'm afraid you're very busy. You'll have to share a room. Share a room? A man in my station of life? I've got appearances to keep up. I should say so, not me, Mush. Naturally, we'll only charge half price. Where's the register? So it's <laughs> a man a man in my station of life, says the script. Didn't we say something in a previous podcast about a radio episode when uh, he changed it to Kleiber from something else? I think we Could did. Could be. It's mm. sort of a catchphrase, yeah. isn't it? I mean, they weren't, well, they weren't uh, big yes. on catchphrases, but it is one that is repeated several times. You know, it's an, enough for you to notice it and to think, oh, that's yeah. a Hancockism, like Stone yeah. Me or Corblimey. Well, not the Corblimey is unique. Well, it's got a lovely double meaning about it. It's like, yeah. I'm, you know, how he thinks he's so a man of his calibre and how he can't quite pronounce it or doesn't understand yeah. the pronunciation. Yeah. It's yeah. a lovely double meaning. Adds to that pompous idiot kind of thing that is the character. Yes, of course. Very well, sir, but I'm afraid you'll have to share a room. We're very busy. Share a room? A man of my calibre? <laughs> not on your life. I'm not sharing a room, Mush. Naturally, we should only charge half price. Where's the register? Yeah, we are. <laughs> I was going to say the plane. The plane looks yeah. absolutely quite luxurious by today's standards. There's a lot more space, isn't there, than you get in an actual yeah. plane. I've not, not, I've been on a plane for twenty years, but um, yeah, even with Peggy and Clifford in it, even with Peggy. But the way we were, the way we were crammed in like sardines a few months ago, even on British Airways, it looks absolutely positively luxurious. To be yeah. honest, yeah, you can't watch any movies on the back of those seats, though, James. No, that's true. No, that's it was true. before before those days, I think, uh, somewhat. It was definitely before those days. Yep, indeed. In the snide sequence when he, he comes in and um I said he's he's acting quite camp and that with Hancock. And there's then there's that little sequence when he talks about he, he's going to put up his photographs, but all the photographs are of him. Yeah. And uh he says, uh what is it? it says, um I ain't got no one else. He says, I just oh, I just you? put my oh. photos up and Hancock says, Yeah, they're all of you and he says, Well, I haven't got anyone else. Well, we'll soon have this place looking homely. I'll just put my photos up. I always put my photos up. Stops me feeling lonely. But they're all of you. Yes, I haven't got anybody else. <laughs> and then uh, Hancock gives him a photo of him, doesn't he? That's right. He's, oh, thank you. Oh, I should treat yes. you. Yeah. you ugly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It's a strange little sequence, isn't it? Here, I tell you what, I've got a photograph of me. Here, you have that. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Oh, I think you're nice. 
Mm. It just goes to show you there is some kindness left in the world after all. Well, I should treasure this. You don't know what this means to me. Oh, I'll never forget you. And you ugly. <laughs> But then he does he does the little fingers thing, doesn't he? Go on, be little fingers. Yeah. Let's be friends. Yeah. Yes. I mean, was that a yeah. very fifties thing, little fingers? I mean, it's it's sort it was, of like a childhood playground. It? Yeah. It's a, it's a playground thing. I, I I sort of remember that sort of thing. But uh, yeah. Mm. yeah, and it's and it's usually when it's snide involved, isn't it? In the radio. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. usually a snide thing to do little fingers. Yeah. Snide is a bit of a man-child, isn't he, really? He's sort of like a six-year-old. Yes, yeah. It's like that episode in the old school reunion where he's like, uh, well, you know, I've been here, I'm 26. You're a bit old for being at school. Well, I, I know all these other kids, they do their race cars and things. I just sit there with me coloured bricks. One and one is two, it, yeah. two and two is four, four <laughs> and four is... One and one is one two. One and one is two. <laughs> <laughs> two, yes. <laughs> you know... Doctor, Doctor Klanger said I was to be your fag. What form are you in? I'm in the first form. How old are you? Twenty-seven. <laughs> How long have you been in the first form? Sixteen years. <laughs> well, between you and me, I'm not very bright. <laughs> yeah. Go on, you try me out. Go on, ask me something. All right, I will. I think perhaps you underestimate yourself. Now, uh, what's three sixes? Uh, three sixes. Uh, 666. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, is it? If you want anything, just open the window and attract me attention. Yes, all right, I'll sling a brick at you. Yeah, that'll do. One and one or two. Two and two or four. Four and four. One and one. Or two. But it is, it is wonderful seeing Ken do it in his little role. In fact, actually, Ken has a much smaller role in this than Richard Bottis, I think. He's only really in that one yeah. one little scene yeah. for five minutes. But what a scene it is. And then he just makes a brief appearance at the end, doesn't mm. he? Yeah. yeah. But then he just con that's consistent, really, with the radio programmes, because quite often yeah. he appears in the last couple of minutes, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah as the, the snide character's not usually there. He's slap bang in the middle, I think, isn't he, pretty much? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, then, he, then he goes on about, as well, as like, oh, no, I can't sleep by the window. I haven't got me halibut oil capsules. I've got to unpack and I've got to get a good night's rest, otherwise my yodels suffer. He wouldn't want that to happen, would he? No. <laughs> oh, well, I'll have this bed, I think. Get hmm. your honourable yodeling equipment off my bed. That is your bed over there by the window. Oh, no. No, I can't sleep by the window. I haven't bought me halibut oil capsules with me. <laughs> Good luck. And I, I heard of cod liver oil. I googled halibut oil capsules, and they are a thing. Apparently, it's not just a. Oh, really? Apparently so. Yeah, I assumed it was something they made up to make him sound more daft, but apparently not. What do they do then? Same as cod liver oil, I guess. It's pretty much the same. More expensive. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> more or less. More or less. I, I love the fact that I love the fact that all through that scene, all the things that are going on, and suddenly you get the. Th other guy in the second bed and he's mm. clearly been there the whole time <laughs> silent under the bedclothes all that time uh, and then suddenly sits up and says will you be quiet i'm trying to get some kip the number of people on twitter who are adamant that that is bill kerr is incredible i don't know why oh, really this, why this myth has grown up people think it's bill oh, really? kerr. it doesn't look like him it doesn't sound like him it's not him it's not credited to him why do people insist it is? 
That's a good question. I don't think, think it, I don't think we know who it is, do we? It's not credited. No, he's he's not credited in the book. No, but it's definitely not Bill. There's a few people. I mean, Evelyn Lund, obviously, she doesn't have a speaking role other than going oh at one point. Oh. Um, but she's not credited. It's just that I was like, I know that face, um, and, and yeah. looked it up. But no, there's a few people who aren't credited. I mean, you've got Manville Tarrant is in this one. Manville Terrence's name appears in quite a lot of Hancock's half hours. He's in a lot of them, isn't he? Almost never speaks. Which one is he then? He is the porter with the moustache um, who's standing behind Tony oh, when he right. enters the hotel. Yes, of course. Yeah. He's also yeah. in uh, one of the police officers in the uh, Air Steward. Uh, he's another police officer in another one. Um, he, he appears in quite a few. I think he was one of the adopted sons in the lost episode, uh, The Adopted Family that Hancock adopts yeah. these 45-year-old sons so they can get a house on the um, on benefits or whatever. And, uh, yeah, he appeared in quite a lot of them, often in little bit parts, just, you know, he was a regular, but a less well-known one. And uh, you don't yeah. you, know, you don't get many close-ups of Manville. I think you, get, you know, probably get the, the closest up you do in this one. And that's, uh, that's, as you say, there are quite a few people who aren't, aren't credited. And that's that's the usual in these, isn't yeah. it? There's a there's a good number of extras. Yeah. So did anyone spot the fluff part way through? No, I didn't. There is a fluff. Tony sort of misprint semi mispronounces a word, but he moves on so quickly you almost miss it. Well the one that I noticed was was the panic about the wheels. Because he says, Where's the yeah. wheels? The wheels the wheels have gone. Where's the boats? Where's the wheels? He yeah. says boats. He says boats. He that, that's that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, um, yeah. as in like you know, where's the boats? Where's the parachutes? Kind of yeah. I can see the shadows there. The old tailplane, the wings, the two engines, the old wheels hanging down. There are no wheels. Where are the wheels? That's it. We're doomed. Where are the boats? Where are the wheels? They're in the wings, sir. What are they doing in the wings? Get them out. They're sir. But it's not in the script, so I I think yeah. it must have been a a fluff. He, he was, you know, doing in full in full panic mode. Man the boats, everyone off. Uh, you know, we're all going to drown. Oh no! Uh, oh. Hancock and Hancock, women and children first. <laughs> <laughs> of course, do you notice the um, topical reference in this one to a particular film? I did. Uh, Man in the Sky, which is a Jack Hawkins drama thriller, and I, I Nick said, "Do you want me to download it so I can find it?" I was like, "No, I've read the plot. It doesn't look good." It's a Jack Hawkins film about uh, an airline pilot who uh, is testing out this new aeroplane and then they run into some difficulty and he's told by his employers to ditch it in the sea but he just carries on sort of circling with the the one engine because one engine goes, you know, until he can land and risk his life but also saves the company kind of thing. But yeah, it was uh, released in January 1957 so only three months before this would have been broadcast and uh, was, you know, Jack Hawkins is quite a big name, a sort of a thriller about an aeroplane that Very big name. maybe is going to crash or, oh. yep. you know, is, is quite a, a big one. You're edging your way to the door. You're going to be the first to jump. Are we going to fly here? That's it. Those poor wretches. Where's my skis? I'm off. No, no, no. no. Please sit down, sir. There's nothing wrong, I assure you. That's what they all say. I've seen Man in the Sky. I know. The plane is disintegrating. The nails are coming out. The nails, the nails are not coming out, sir. Everything's under control. My co-pilot's steering. He was in an episode of Hancock's Half Out. He was. He was in the elocution teacher where he played a version of himself um, who goes to get elocution lessons and gets taught to play, you know, Hamlet like, Oh, Jim lad, 
whether it is nobler yes, 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 yes. to <laughs> suffer the slings and arrows, <laughs> outrageous misfortune, um, or such like, uh, and ends up being very good a, job. It a rock and roll, rock and roll singer. I think towards the end. I mean, I would have such yeah. a shame that doesn't exist because you know, big guest star and sending himself up would have been delightful to see. Yeah, and that would have been good. He was also in the Crawl Sea, which gets mentioned in Hancock's Half Hour because he was in that with Moralist. He was indeed, yeah, yeah. Well, this is a story of the Battle of the Atlantic. A story of an ocean, two ships, and a handful of men. The men are the heroes. The heroines are the ships. The only villain is the sea. The cruel sea. But man has made more cruel. Yeah, I do. I do like a bit of Jack Hawkins. He's because, uh, of course, he um, he lost his voice due to due to throat cancer and the treatments for it. And in his later years, in the last few films, he was either dubbed by um, Charles Gray or another actor who had a quite a Jack Hawkins type voice. So I think he's in Theatre of Blood, murdering Diana Dawes as his wife. Down, strumpet. <laughs> And uh, he's voiced by Charles Gray in that, and I think he's voiced by someone, is it Zulu? Is it, I can't remember if that's before or after he lost his voice, but he was a big one, a big name. He was in the original League of Gentlemen, the sort of thriller crime film from the 50s, yep. which I thoroughly enjoyed. Wonderful cast in that one as well. But he'd have been good to see in comedy, because you don't really see Jack Hawkins in comedy. You see him as sort of grizzled thrillers, and the sort of the things he's, he's in. Yep. They had nothing to lose by joining the League of Gentlemen. Their leader had a plan which staggered their imaginations and sounded in each one of them a call to high adventure. Think of it as a full-scale military operation. What chance has a bunch of ordinary civilians got against a trained, armed and disciplined military unit? You are a soldier, man. You ought to know. <laughs> I love the joke at the end mm. when he's saying where he'd rather be and he says, oh, send me to Alcatraz. Send me to Holloway, which of course is a women's prison. And I love that as a throwaway gag right at the end of the episode. Oh, so this episode, oh, does he say that? Oh, oh is he being manhandled yeah. out the door? When he's, <laughs> um, when he's in his prison cell and they start to play the, spoiler alert, and oh. they start to play the French horn, and the um, <laughs> and, and the yodeling starts. Oh. He says, "Send me to Alcatraz. Send me to Holloway." I don't know, though. I suppose it could be worse. At least I get the sleep and the relaxation I wanted. Yes, six months solitary. Lovely. It's better than the hotel in a way. It's it's quieter. It's it's much quieter. <laughs> Send me to the chain gang. Send me to Alcatraz. I want to go to Holloway. Uh, 
it ends very much like 13th of the month, doesn't it? The the radio series episode. And of course, it's uh, it's an yes. alpine horn or, or an alp horn that's being played by um, the other actor, uh, which is uh, a specific instrument. They, they are that big. That's not a specially made prop. That's a, a real thing, but... Um, that's the real thing, isn't yeah. it? Yep. Yeah. I thought yeah, he was yeah. going to smoke it when he first got it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Half past five. I've been at it for hours. Fine holiday this is. I've not a week of sleep all night. I thought he was going to smoke this when he first dragged it out. <laughs> and of course, Kenneth as the uh, yodeling champion of East Dulwich. Which just makes me think of the Dulwich Gnomes, another lost comedy series that uh, had uh, Hugh Lloyd and uh, Terry Scott in it as two gnomes. But you can't guess why I'm over here. I don't want to know why. Have a guess. I'm not even going to try. I don't care why you're over here. But you'd never guess anyway. I'm not interested in your activities. What are you over here? I'm not going to tell you. Come on. No. Come on. No. I'll give you my photograph. Oh, all right. I'm coming here. Yes. You promise you won't laugh? I won't laugh. Come here. Yes. I'm over here for the yodeling championship. Get away. Mm, I am. I'm the yodeling champion of East Dulwich. <laughs> well, I am surprised. Mm. Yeah, so it's a wonderful daft end to the episode, isn't it, with the, the yodeling and the <laughs> kind of being in prison. And it's like, well, he hasn't actually done anything wrong. You, you kind, of, kind of have to feel a bit sorry for the character. Maybe a little bit. Yep, and... And, of course, we wonder what the um, alpine horn player and the yodeler have done to be in prison alongside him. Noise pollution. <laughs> well, that could be it. Oh, I reckon. They, were, they seem to be yodeling and playing the horn all night rather than during the day. Yeah. One of the things I thought was quite funny was uh, during the course of the episode, I think he's, uh, he's on the plane in, in the opening sequence, he reminisces about being a, a, a pilot with all his exploits mm. and his, his aerobatics in 1916 in the First World War. Oh, yeah. And, of course, yeah. In, he wasn't even born then. And, 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 and I think there's a similar thing in Air Steward Hancock when he's uh, talking about yeah. when he's an air steward and he's pretending to be a pilot. And, he, again, he talks about the First World War as though he was in it. When in, when in fact, you know, in real life, he, he wasn't born until mm. uh, some years afterwards. Yeah, it's interesting, that. Yeah, it sort of feeds into this character being a bit older than his actual years, isn't he? He's like, yes. well, you know, yeah. oh, back yeah. in my day, you know, um, yeah. you know, he kind of acts like he's older than his character is, even though, obviously... Yeah. All the time, yes, he does. You don't remember me, do you? No, sir. <laughs> Stick Hancock of the Flying Fools, 1916? Uh, <laughs> no, sir. I got the one over Potter's Bar, you know. I'll always remember. It was a winter's morning when I spotted this cigar-like monster at Angel's 1-5. Only one thing to do, climb above him. I kicked the rudder, climbed up, got him in my sights, and what happened, you may well ask? Me twin vicars jammed. <laughs> well, the Hun was throwing everything at me. Three on me tail, I was looping the loop with 120 miles an hour. Only one thing to do, I stepped out in the wing, controlling the plane with my feet. <laughs> Grabbed the bombs out of the racks and threw him at him. <laughs> Give me victory roll over Hendon Airport, picking up packages off the tarmac with the wingtips. Isn't it funny that the oldest two surviving episodes, if you sit down to watch the box set, the first yeah. one, Alpine Holiday, which has, of course, got the uh, the aircraft at the beginning, and the next one, 
Air Stewart Hancock. Yeah. Yeah. Another aircraft themed episode. Yeah. yeah. And then not long after you've got the airfield of the bomb in the garden, haven't you? I think that's the same that's series right. as Air Stewart. Yes, it is, yeah. Because the character of Hancock, like even in the blood donor, he says he's thirty seven, doesn't he? When Tony himself was only about thirty five. Does he say thirty five? No, uh, she says how old are you is thirty five. Uh, but he was right. How old was he? He was actually 37, wasn't he? He was 30, yes. Yeah, he was so 37. Aged. Well, it's much like um, Harry H. Corbett's uh, Harold Steptoe, you know. Yeah. The character was meant to be a bit older than the actor in the first four series and mm. then a bit younger than the actor in the last four series, mm. just for mm. reasons. Mm. Um, so the character sort of meant to be slightly older than he is when they first started doing Hancock's Arthur and slightly younger because it's set in this mm. sort of condensed period of time, maybe. I think when Hancock is exaggerating telling stories of the war, for me, that is when he's at his mm. best. It just seems like it's just coming out so naturally to him. It's just so it's just so clever. That is absolute peak. It, it is very clever. Yeah. You mean in the radio episodes? In this one Did, as well. In this one, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. this one. But I love the way, you know, he's telling his wartime story and then the, the announcement comes over, fasten your safety belts, and he immediately switches mm. instantly yeah. to panic, mm. panic mode. Mm. Panic mode. <laughs> Nerves of steel. 144 missions and never turned a hair. Fasten your safety belt, please. What's the matter then? That's it. We're out of control, aren't we? I'm too young to go. It's please right, do something. Sir, we're coming into land. That's all. It's all over and done with. You're quite safe. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that, he could play pomposity beautifully, couldn't he? Mm. Pompous ass. And, and we all kind of enjoy a pompous ass. I mean, you know, Captain Mannering is not a world away from that. And, and the many other mm. comedy characters that you think of as pompous... You're like, oh, yeah, no, they're quite... It's a similarity with the way it's played, you know, that sort of pomposity. The most famous one is in The Blood Donor, isn't it? When it says, yeah. Captain Harrison, I said, yes, sir, he said. Yes, sir. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, yeah, oh. yeah. Of course, Sid not being in this one, obviously, you know, you don't necessarily miss Sid because you've got such a wonderful guest cast in the form of June Whitfield, Richard Bottis, John Veer, Kenneth Williams, just to name a few. Canonically within the TV series, in The Russian Prince, Sid's referred to as only having been out of prison for two days. So that's why Sid's not in the first two episodes, really. He's been in, in clink. <laughs> so whatever job it was, he did last. Interestingly, with the TV series, uh, Galton Simpson had... Uh, Kenneth was in all of the second series. I think Hattie was in a fair chunk of the second series yeah. as well. But obviously Bill never appeared on screen in, in his role in, in the TV show. But would well, I mean I would have been wonderful had more episodes or particularly an episode with Kenneth and Hattie still existed, you know, if you had Ken, Hattie, Sid and Tony all in one. Uh, and there were a few. I mean the Russian Prince, which is a wonderful, wonderful script, which I, I'd love to see remade one day by professional actors. Which one was that, sorry, John? The Russian Prince had Ken oh, yes. Hattie yeah, and yeah. Sid all, all in it. Um, wonderful to see that remade. I'm um, just having a look at Wilma and Ken, um, Hattie and Kenneth are all are both in all of the remaining series two episodes together. I didn't realise until I look now that she yeah. was in so many. Yeah, she was in, and then one guest role in The Cruise, which still exists a few series later. Yes. Yeah. I've noticed you. You're always on your own, aren't you? Yes, thank you. Don't join in anything, do you? I enjoy being on my own. Are you an eccentric? No, I'm not. 
just leave me alone. Do a lot of reading, don't you? You'll hurt your eyes, you will. <laughs> I'll hurt yours in a minute. <laughs> Go on, there's a bathing beauty competition up the road. Go on, push off. <laughs> You're a cheeky one, you are. <laughs> what cabin are you in? Never you, man. I think that could have really, really been something special and, and maybe that, that extra punch of having those guest stars in the second D TV series made it more a thing that got it renewed and renewed for years and years, although they never reappeared, I don't think, in series three onwards. I could have given it the punch to make it that be more popular because I, I don't know how popular Hancock's first TV show on the BBC was, but I'd imagine the second series was very popular just due to its cast and the writing I think that the scripts from the second series are generally better than the ones from the first series on, on balance. Um, having read them to all, I don't know if you have a similar opinion. I think it was it was a work in progress, wasn't it, mm. for Hancock and Gordon Simpson. The, mm. the first ever TV episode um, had mixed reviews, as they say. And yeah. they even Gordon Simpson said they weren't quite sure how to handle it. They'd never written a television thing before. And everyone advised them that... Uh, you know, you've got to focus on action rather than words, but they, they kind of ignored that and did a very wordy scripts. But um, right. it, it took a while to get going, I think. And, and, and even today, you know, even in more modern comedies and programs, you often find the first series is not so good, and, and then, uh, then you sort of crack on and get in, in, into the swing of it. And I, I think that's yeah. probably what happened there. Blackadder's a prime example of that. Well, absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah, and only fours and horses are saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I think the first episode of the first TV series is a very meta, fourth wall-breaking program about making a television program, so I can yeah. see why perhaps that one wasn't. But the second yeah. episode ever of the of the TV show was um, the, the script The Artist, which I think uh, a lot of themes were reused for, for the film The Rebel from that and the Poetry Society and, and one or two other episodes that have those sort of arty themes. But that was a... I mean, that one had... Um, oh, the wonderful... The man in black himself, uh, Valentine Dial. Valentine Dial. As yes. um, uh, Rich Count. Uh, and how good would it be to see that one? I was watching Valentine Dial with a crow on his head as the Black Guardian in the Series 20 of Doctor Who I've got on the Blu-ray recently and uh, wonderful mm. to see him being villainous in that but uh what a what a classy deep voiced actor he was there you are there's the murderer oh without the hair you have no proof there was no hair it was a who <laughs> order and hoopcroft they understand i knew they could not be the murderers but i knew you probably would pass by and here you are you cunning devil oh never get away you're wasting your time my men are place surrounded yes I did it. I loved her. And no one had ever found out that I did it. But you, Hercules Parrot, oh! My little fluff. You're not Joan Whitfield. And you're not Lawrence Olivia. <laughs> they told me Lawrence Olivia was going to play that part, otherwise I would never have consented. That was Valentine Dial in the ATV Tony Hancock show from 1956. Uh, that was episode six, which also featured Hattie Jakes. It's quite poor quality, the uh, video, isn't it? It's quite a struggle to watch, especially when you've got a bigger TV and it sort of scales up. 
Yeah, well, I mean, it was it was telerecorded onto thirty five mil film, but thing yeah. is, it's a four hundred five line television uh, image, but there are actually less than four hundred and five lines because some of that sub carrier information that you know would subsequently get used for things like subtitles. When you said about when you watch it on the DVD and you get the lines and stuff, yes. when I watched it a second time today in preparation for this. I thought, oh, hold on a minute, I don't have to put the DVD on. It was on telly recently. I've got it on the record. Mm. And when I watched it on TV, it seemed better quality than when I was watching it on the DVD. You didn't see the line. It must been tied up a bit. Perhaps, perhaps. Well, I was yeah. wondering, had they done anything, or was it just an illusion or whatever? It could be to do with compression. It could be to do with them um, doing some kind of bit of deinterlacing, perhaps. I mean, I've got yeah. a copy that someone's vid-fired and stuff, um, but you've only got you've got less than two hundred lines of picture information on that particular telerecording, um, and probably on most of them because I think stored telerecording, stored field telerecording, where you can see both fields at once, didn't come out until about nineteen fifty-eight. Because what they did was they made one of them brighter through a special adaptation, so you could get two fields of of video on one frame of, of film. Um, and that's why things like Doctor Who from 1965 onwards looks a bit better than Hancock's Half Hour from a fair few years before. Although some of them may have been the stored field telerecordings, I don't, I don't really know. But I have my suspicions that... But of course the later ones only exist as 16mm film recordings, so in theory they're lower quality. So you've kind of got a trade-off between the other. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I think it's time for the scores. So, uh, what do you think you're going to give that one, James? Well, I I did struggle in general with the TV TV shows. I just, I don't feel that as yeah. strong. But I, I do think that's down to the writers sort of adapting to having, to using the visual gags more. And I do think there's some benefits to it. So, I think the Hancock's facial expressions really, really come into play whenever he's on these, uh, on, the, on the TV shows. I think he's... Absolute master it. I don't think it affects his timing or Hancock's performance, but I just struggle with the visual element, like the the numbers on the doors flipping round. It's not unbelievable, is it? I think it's it's very much comedy of its time. I just mm. don't think. I think that Galton Sims have been writing for a long a long period of time by this point, and I think that I think almost it gets in their head a little bit that they have got the the TV to think about. Well, rightly so, because it's a hell of a a big change and knowing that this is god this is going to be recorded and this is going to be forever it must sort of hang quite heavy around the neck i do enjoy the episode i don't think it's anyway the strongest episodes i think you know when you think a little bit later on you've got lord byron lived here um mm. and some really standout episodes i think i'd probably give this a seven and a half i think I think it's good performances all round. It's lovely to see Kenneth Williams as a very young um, Snide. Snide. Yeah, Snide, Snide character. There's a good cast on it, and I think there's there's overall really, really good, strong performances. I just struggle with the story a little bit. I, I, it's not that I don't dis dislike it. It's just not one of my go-to episodes that I would, you know, put on. But then you can look at that and you think, well, there's so many episodes that I would put on this would probably be quite far down the list. However, it's still interesting and it's still quite a, a good bit of history. So this is a, so, so far, the earliest recording of... 
Hancock's half hour on TV. So yeah, seven and a half, I think. What about you, Martin? I'll up that a little in terms of the score. I I agree with James. This isn't as strong as anything that you'll get in the in the later series. But I I'm gonna I've scored it an eight. I enjoy the storyline. I like the fact that it's got this element of farce, which is something you don't normally see in Hancock's Half Hour. For, for me, that just makes it stand out as a little different. And I suppose I really like the fact that it's got Kenneth Williams as Snide. And I think being able to see Snide then also helps with then listening to the radio episodes because you've just got this picture of Kenneth at that particular age. Um, and I really like the fact that I can have that image of him then in my mind playing this particular character. So I, I like the story and I'll say I like the farcical element of it um, because it is so different from anything else that you you see in Hancock's Half Hour. Uh, and I think we've got a very strong sporting cast. I think we've lost him. He's gone. He, he'll be back in a second. He might be. Uh, technology, eh? Isn't it wonderful? Back in my day, you'd have had to send letters to each other. Back in your day, it was two tin cans and a bit of string to hold them together, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> so we used to do that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, back in the schoolyard, yeah. I reckon we could have got a letter to Tim by the time we get this bit out. <laughs> send, send, send your review by carrier pigeon, yes. <laughs> He's coming back in. He's coming back. Back in the room. Hello, hello. Hello, well, I'm back on my phone. Back on so, your phone. Uh, and it's goodbye from him. That should do it. That'll be <laughs> right. And that's the end of the podcast. That's the end of the podcast. <laughs> so I think I was just saying, um, I like the um, I like the farcical element and I I say I like the fact that it's got that you know, the Kenneth Williams piece. And actually I think Rich Wattis plays a really strong character in this. Mm. And and I think he would he would have been nice to have had in more half hours because I think he's a you know, a really strong player. So anyway, it's an it's an eight from me. So over to you, Timbo. Well, I've been trying to mull over in my mind what, what sort of score to give this. I think it's one of those episodes like we've looked at, looked at and listened to before when it's not necessarily your go-to episode or a favourite, but when, when you come to look at it critically when you're doing a podcast, you think, well, actually, that's quite good. And I, th- I think I said the same for the 13th of the series, which wasn't necessarily one of my favourites, but... Um, I know it was one of Martin's, and when we did it, I thought, well, actually, yeah, it is very funny. This one, I think it's um, it's it's good in some ways. I, I, I quite like the farce element. I certainly like mm. the supporting cast in this. I think what Martin said and others have said is absolutely right. Richard Bottis is, is very good in this and, and has a good few lines to say. It's a strong supporting cast in this one. I think the opening sequence I, I, I quite like in, in the aeroplane. I'm not quite sure about about the snide bit. I have to say, mm. I, I love Kenneth Williams, and uh, I like his involvement in in the radio series. I'm not too sure whether this works very well as him as a snide on TV, um, mm. particularly wearing the short shorts, etc. It, I, I I can see why there was discussion about whether that sort of character w- was appropriate or not. But he does it brilliantly. And uh, Jim Whitfield, I, I think, is, is is superb. So overall, it, it's a nice watch. Um, I'm sort of toying between a seven and an eight. So I think I'll do the same as James and go seven and a half. And uh, so, uh, yeah, that's my score. 
Well, you see, I, I kind of see where you're coming from. I kind of agree with James to, to some extent. I think if it weren't for some of the guest cast, particularly, you know, Richard Wattis, Julian Whitfield and Kenneth Williams, I think it would probably be a six. But I think their performances and the ensemble element of that add to it to the extent that I think it, it rounds it up to an eight. It's not a favourite episode of mine per se, but I can see it's got quite a lot going for it and I can see why it worked so well even without the C. James character in there. I think, you know, there's three wonderful lines in there of, of Richard's, oh, you naughty Englishman, Kenzin, you ugly, and uh, I wish to report a new tree on slope 604. Just <laughs> just really tickle me and uh, and, and elevate it to, to some extent. They did really well. I mean, you know, considering you only got essentially three sets you've got the airplane the hotel lobby and the the bedroom which is probably the same bedroom redressed in the in the second scene uh, in a different bed set in a different bedroom the guest cast really ramp it up to an eight for me and of course you've got the the thing as well of uh, i was going to mention that um kenneth's first introduction in the television series uh, was recreated in in the the drama Fantabulosa, starring uh, young Michael Sheen, who looks equally young playing Kenneth Williams in in that role compared to how he looks now, twenty <laughs> uh, odd years later. That that's that's quite quite a nice little thing to go. Oh, they're recreating it. Oh, special. Um, but yeah, the uh, the show is a fun one. The farce is is it's difficult to perhaps suspend your disbelief but i can think i can do it sufficiently for 28 minutes or however long the episode is yeah. but it's still it's still funny it still works and considering it's a 65 year old television show or something like that that that's pretty impressive because there's many shows from that area that are just not quite that funny anymore so uh, an eight from me and um a cracking bit of fun yeah so I suppose that's uh, probably an average of around about eight points, which is uh, certainly more than an armful. And that's about it for this week. So if you'd like to take it away, Tim. Come and join us in the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. You can find us at tonyhancock.org.uk for all the information on how to join. Just that's £8 a year, you'll have access to the members area of our website and receive four magazines a year by email packed with information on Tony, his shows and archive material. Members also get a digital-only bonus pages supplement every quarter. Or you can have full-colour printed copies posted to your door for £16 in the UK or £26 worldwide. We're a friendly and welcoming bunch, so please do join. We have reunion events with archive displays, guest speakers and special screenings. Please do get in touch. We love questions, conundrums and feedback. To do so is very easy. Send your emails to podcast at tonyhancock.org.uk And keep an eye on our X accounts for the latest news on the podcast and all things Tony Hancock. Our X accounts are East Team Lad, Tony Hancock Appreciation Society and Very Nearly and Holful. In the next episode, we'll be reviewing Tim's favourite episode, Fred's Pie Store. Hooray! <laughs> for the sixth and final radio series. <laughs> for now, that's very nearly an awful, so I'll say ta-ta. It's sayonara from me. Chickadee Snitch. And this is GLK London, 
closing down for a quick cough and a drag. Watch out for them trees on slope 604, eh, Tim, when you next go on your oldies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be anywhere near ski slope. <laughs> very wise, very wise. This has been an official podcast of the Tony Hancock Appreciation Society. Unfortunately, it was not written by Alan Simpson and Ray Gordon, whoever they are. The announcer is me, Robin Sebastian, currently appearing in the saloon bar of the Hendon Racket. So, on to Tim's favourite one next time, and we're all going to review the long mm. version from Hancock's Half Hour Collectibles, because we know Tim loves all the extra bits in it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we know he doesn't. Uh, wind him up. Get, guess, See, if guess it's your favourite episode, more of it can't guess wind what? you up. Yeah. Yeah. Go on, have another guess. Have another guess. Uh, have go another guess. Go, no, go on, go on, go on, go guess. On. Yeah. yeah. If that was real life, it'd be going, shut up! Oh, <laughs> just spit it out, boy. <laughs> <laughs> We're your hosts. I'm James Griffith. I'm Martin Gibbons. I'm John We're Street. Straight <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I shoved straight in there. <laughs> and he swore as well. Tim's going. So you carry on. You 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 do, do it again, John. Do that I'll... bit again. I'm John I'm Street. Everyone else finish first. And I'm Tim Elms. <laughs> you left a pause, Tim. It threw me off. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> do you know what the, the problem is? I've just turned. This is my work laptop. I've just turned on. I can see all my emails are pinging through at the bottom, and my eyes are automatically <laughs> reading them. Going, oh, oh, I apologise. Yeah. Oh, that's not good. That's no. not good. Apologies. Not